following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is Corey Olson, and we are in session number 24 of our discussion of Morgoth's Ring. And tonight, the goal is we're going to finish talking about the Athrobeth and its attendant text. We're going to get to the end of that section so that only Myths Transformed lies between us and the end of our discussion of Morgoth's Ring. Uh, this has been a... Uh, a I have, I don't know about you guys, but I have found Morgoth's Ring to be uh, a fairly transformative experience myself as I, we've been going through. Uh, I have never experienced this book like I have as we've been reading it together here. And uh, that has been uh, just enormous for me in my thinking about Tolkien. So uh, I hope that you guys have all been uh, enjoying that as well. And then, of course, we will move on uh, to Dante uh, thereafter. So that will all be tremendous fun. Um, so just a uh, uh, to begin with tonight, as I've been doing throughout uh, our fundraising campaign, um, and as I explained last week, uh, I want to talk about Signum University. I want to I want to I want to be sort of sharing with folks some of the some of the issues that are happening in higher education and the ways and you know what what are what are some of the reasons why I have been feeling the way that I have about the importance of uh Signum and really raising the profile of what we are doing at Signum now at this time of turmoil in higher education. So um the uh uh the I've been going through uh, at the beginning of each of my broadcasts and talking about one of the major problems in higher education. Um, I'm, I'm on problem number five uh, tonight. Um, and tonight's problem is, uh, is sort of an incipient problem in a sense. It's a very real problem that faces higher education, but I'm not sure uh, how much of higher education actually um, is confronting this problem yet. That is, is really acknowledging uh, that it is a problem. Um, I think an insufficient number of people have been acknowledging that this is a problem. And this is something that I've been thinking about and talking about uh, for quite some time. And the problem is alternative credentials. That is alternative, uh, 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 you know, degree concepts and things. Um, let me talk about this by telling a brief story. I, of course, uh, emphasize at the start that this is only part of the story, right? This is, I'm not trying to claim that the story that I'm going to tell is the whole story or all that could be said about these things. Um, and yet the outline here is also clearly true. Back in the old days, decades ago, the bachelor's degree was very valuable and perceived to be very valuable, uh, especially by employers. It was a kind of heuristic. You could trust that somebody who had a bachelor's degree had a wide degree, um, you know, a wide array of skills. There were, there were a bunch of things that you could assume about a college graduate that you could not assume about somebody who is not a college graduate, and but which you could assume pretty much for all college graduates across the board. There was this sort of higher level uh, of training that they had that not everybody else had. Um, also, getting a college degree, completing college was challenging. It was hard to do. And to complete, to not only go to college, but to complete college was 
uh, well, unusual. I don't know. I don't want to say unusual in the sense of like nobody did it or anything like that. But again, it, it made you stand out, right? It showed potential employers not only uh, that you had a certain number of things that they could, you know, rely on you to have uh, as far as skills and, and, and things are concerned. Um, but it also meant that you had showed some uh, significant degree of perseverance, right? You had undertaken a very major project and you had satisfactorily completed it, right? I mean, it's it's not everybody did it. Not everybody was able to do that. Um, so again, it it meant something. It told you about the person if they had a college degree. It told you something about them. Um, and then the next stage in my story uh, is picking up on something I talked about last week, which is Title IV. Uh, then Title IV funding comes in. And once Title IV funding was in place, that is the student loan programs and everything, um, and now uh, universities found that they could increase their tuition because before, of course, they couldn't price uh, what they were offering out of the financial reach of their market. Um, but now even... Uh, you know, even uh, students from poor backgrounds could still afford to get could still afford to pay a lot of tuition because they could get the loans for it now, right? And so, tuition goes up and up and up. And for many years, the uh, increase in tuition significantly outpaced the uh, out, outpaced inflation. So that, you know, tuition rates were rising above inflation for a long time. And therefore, the financial pressures began to grow and grow on this. And one of the needs, one of the ways in which this changed universities is that, of course, they had increasingly to justify their expenses, right? As they were asking more and more for a college degree, they had to make sure that the perceived value of that product continued to rise, right? Um, in or there, if you're going to try to convince people uh, to go into that kind of debt to 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 hamper themselves in the way that increasingly students were being asked have are still asked to hamper themselves in their future finances, there has to be um, there has to be good, clear return on investment, right? And so the universities uh, sort of doubled down on this link between degrees and jobs, right? If you get a bachelor's degree, it gives you a huge advantage in getting jobs, which, of course, was, was, was true in a lot of ways. Um, and one of the things that happened over the years as a consequence of this is a greater and greater emphasis on specific career preparation in college degrees, right? Colleges say, you want this career, come to our school and study this program and it will prepare you for that career. Um, and that link, you know, that, that idea of now no longer college just being you know, a place where you go to learn all of these general skills and, and, and to be prepared in many different ways. It, increasingly, it began to narrow in focus towards come to our school and we will prepare you for whatever specific career you are looking to do. Increasingly, the, as the degree was being sold as a ticket to the good job, the university became more and more focused just, I'm, I have to use the word just, on job training. And also, it became more and more important from the, from the university standpoint to get the 
students through the degree point because that's what they were promising them, right? That's the product that they were selling for so much money. Um, inevitably, the degree programs themselves changed. Again, we've got to keep the students moving through, right? We've got to keep, we've got to keep them moving through. We've got to make sure uh, we, we need to bring in more and more students and we need to get them through. We need to keep them coming, right? Our retention rate really matters. We've got to keep them through and we've got to get them out the door with a degree um, sort of however we can. Um, the result, of course, is that the college degree doesn't any longer mean what it used to mean. And everybody knows this. Everybody in the in the education world, everybody in the um, uh, in the in, in you know in the work world knows that a bachelor's degree in 2020 does not mean what a bachelor's degree in 1975 meant or in 1980 or in 1990. Um, it's just a different world than it used to be. Um, it's no longer, for instance, the same degree of accomplishment to complete a degree. Um, think of the increased emphasis on, you know, student support and making sure that, I mean, you've, it used to be you had to work really, really hard in order to not fail out, in, in order to get through, right? In order to succeed at getting your degree. Sometimes uh, there are some days on which cynically uh, people who work at colleges might think, what do students have to do to, <laughs> to flunk out? <laughs> what do students have to do to make us finally get rid of them? Um, again, that's an exaggeration. It's a cynical exaggeration. But again, the dynamic has really changed. It just it doesn't mean what it used to mean anymore. And now higher ed is in a pickle. This is this is why this is a problem. This whole situation is a problem now. They've long since doubled down on the traditional degrees, like on the, especially on the four-year bachelor's degree as the coin of the realm as far as credentials are concerned. This is the thing which they have from of old said, this is the return on investment. This is why it's worth going into debt because if you get a bachelor's degree, it will mean something and employers will know that you're like, you know, obviously this, this is what needs to happen. Um, but the problem is there's now a decreasing uh, desire for that. There are many places that still do require bachelor's degrees, uh, though sometimes for different reasons uh, than they would have done maybe 40 years ago. Um, but um, but there's also an increasing move towards alternative credentials. In the 21st century, credentials are not likely to remain the same. There's an increasing call among, you know, out in industry for more flexible credentials. Um, the need, I think, first, and this, some of this is me, uh, you know, from here on, this is going to be me predicting here for a little bit, um, that where I think that things are going, where I see things going, um, is, incre is increasingly in the direction of flexible and modular education. Right. So students putting together a program, um, not just going through these very expensive, very long term prepackaged deals that colleges are providing as their four year programs. Um, so that's, I think, going to be happening less and less. Uh, employers are now less and less talking about what degree you have, because, again, how much does that mean? What exactly does that mean? Um, instead, they're increasingly talking about skills. We, we want you to be able to do these things. Show us that you can uh, that you can that you have this list of skills. Um, and 
that's where that's why I think where we are headed, where students are going to be headed, is the much more flexible gathering of smaller scale credential of individual small scale credentials which can demonstrate these particular skills and that whereas in the old days again to say i have a bachelor's degree people would be like oh well then right then i know who you are right well people don't know that anymore right so instead of saying i've got this big degree and you know people being like well so what what does that mean uh, instead they can be like no look i can shoot you want to see somebody who has these skills i can sh i can prove to you i've got that skill i've got that skill i've got that and that and that look here are the credentials i can provide you to show you that i have all of those skills that's where i believe that higher education is well that's where i believe that the hiring market is going the question is whether or not higher education is ready to go there or not um, and we'll see. We'll see how ready they are. Uh, higher education is to adapt. By the way, prior to the COVID pandemic, this is what I was predicting was going to bring about. You know, I've been saying that you know the the crisis that is currently gripping higher education right now and changing the face of higher education forever. Um, this current crisis uh, is. Uh, you know, is very remarkable. I've been predicting a crisis in higher education. We've been on the path to crisis for a long time. Um, this isn't what I expected, right? I mean, I didn't, uh, I didn't see the pandemic coming. Um, but uh, this issue, this alternative credential issue, this is what I expected to precipitate the crisis. Um, but, um, uh, but in any case, I, it's not, it's not changed it, right? Uh, and uh, although the attention has been kind of um, um, uh, has been kind of, uh, moving away. Yeah. Uh, Bruce is saying that, uh, the, uh, the research one state university in, in his state is losing $280 million, is $280 million in the red this year. Yes, exactly. Bruce. Um, do you know what percentage that is? Has anyone said, uh, by the way, like what percentage of their normal annual operating budget is that what percent are they down? I just, I'd be curious to, to if, if you happen to know, that as a person, because of course, you know, many big state universities have enormous budgets. $280 million is a lot, no matter who you are. Uh, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's very remarkable. Um, yeah, there are a lot of, and there are a lot of schools that are living close to the bone. Um, and a lot of small schools that are really going to be suffering, but again, even if they can survive the immediate, uh, the immediate issue now in the pandemic, there's still this question of the future, right? There is still a need that you have to adapt to the future. Are you ready? Is the rest of higher education ready for this? Signum is. We are totally ready for this. Um, in fact, I really, I'm excited about this change. We are, as I've said before, planning uh, and uh, preparing for a new undergraduate program in the humanities. Our undergraduate program will be a four-year bachelor's degree in the sense that we will offer a bachelor's degree if you if you want to to, to complete four years and 120 credits and we will we will give you a degree uh, for that we're, we're we're not going to um, you know sort of banish the bachelor's degree entirely um, but we are not going to be putting all our eggs in that basket either our program is designed in order to uh, uh, enable students to be able to use different we want to have many points of entrance and exit of our program and we can envision lots of of flexible ways in which elements 
of our program, elements of the education, you know, the, the, the education that we can offer um, can be very valuably used to supplement um, as, you know, a separate additional credential alongside, in addition to other credentials that they get from other schools. We're not going to be about just trying to sell people on our four-year program and keep them into our four-year program by hook or by crook in order to make sure that we make our own ends meet. Um, we have some very different ideas about how undergraduate programs can and should be structured, and we're really excited um, uh, about uh, uh, about having that uh, move forward, about about showing some some alternative ways uh, in which that can happen. Um, so um, yeah. Anyway, so that is uh, uh, that's that's my problem number five again, which has been I, I would have you know a year ago I would have said this is the biggest challenge that is on the horizon of higher education, uh, and it's fascinating that in this last year that has been pushed d down into a uh, into a minor issue in a sense, um, but it, it, it still remains right. Uh, once and once the, uh, those schools that managed to survive the next 18 months, uh, are going to still find that this is an issue then they have to address that if that the, the traditional program, you know, the, the, the whole business model of these schools is premised upon, we must bring in the students for the four-year program, uh, get them through, keep them here, uh, and get them to the bachelor's degree program. Are they ready to change? Are they ready to th rethink how that works? Um, yeah. So anyway, that's, uh, that is problem number five uh, that I wanted to talk about. And again, certainly something I am excited. We're working with a bunch of other faculty, uh, other humanities faculty, uh, uh, after following up on our uh, uh, summit on the teaching of the humanities that we held in July. Um, uh, to publish a white paper on the future of teaching the humanities. And this is one of the things that we're kind of thinking about in conjunction with this, some suggestions uh, for some alternative credentialing plans and ways in which this can dovetail with other things. Uh, so uh, again, ways in which we are very ready at Signum not only to be thinking in different ways ourselves, but to help to encourage other folks uh, to be thinking differently about this and maybe help to create, to encourage at least, the creation of a higher, of a future of higher education that's going to be uh, a little bit more in touch uh, with the direction that things are going here in the 21st century. Um, yeah. Um, oh, man, Matt, that is such a good question. And I have to tell you, of all of the questions that folks ask me about online education, this is the one that I don't have a good answer to, mostly because um, this is not something I really think about for reasons that will become obvious. Matt asks, how well do I think virtual higher ed will be able to accommodate topics that require lab facilities, such as many of the, of the sciences, with difficulty? Yeah, um, that's going to be hard. Um, that is a non-trivial thing. Um, and honestly, like it's, as I say, it's something that I haven't thought about much because of our focus. We're focused on the humanities at Signum. Um, and so it's outside my area. Uh, so I don't think about it much. Um, uh, the performing arts are difficult as well. Michael, that's true. It is true. Um, these are These are challenging things. The one thing I would say is that there's been a lot of experimentation with that. People are more flexible than they've ever been, more willing to think about virtual operations than they've ever been before. Um, and 
I think there will be answers. You know, my, you know, Matt, I honestly, I think that virtual reality is the best answer to the lab question. Um, uh, but you know, I don't, that, that's not something I keep close tabs on exactly where we are. You know, sometimes people ask me like, uh, you know, do I see Signum going to a, to a VR classroom someday? Sure. I do. Yeah, absolutely. I, the biggest inhibition against doing anything like that uh, or really pushing towards anything like that is that I don't want to create an accessibility obstacle, right? That is, I don't want to make participating in Signum classes any harder for folks uh, or any more limited. Uh, I don't want to limit it only to people who have like sufficiently like particular expensive pieces of hardware or stuff like that. It's hard enough, right? That we can only reach people who have good, reliable internet connections. Um, once we we're, we're, and, and that hurdle is a hurdle that's being overcome, uh, which I'm really glad of. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah. So anyway, but, but I, but, but we'll see, we'll, we'll see where the, where the technology goes and I'll be following along with that, but we'll see. Yeah. Bruce says that they're doing uh, VR labs this year. Um, and you're worried that the uh, university will decide it's more cost effective and it'll become the new normal. A lot of that stuff is going to be, um, is going to be, is going to be happening. I think, um, definitely, definitely. Um, yep. Yep. Yeah. Michael, no, the internet accessibility obstacle is a big problem. And again, it's in my, in my view, it's one of the, one of the silver linings of the COVID situation, in my opinion, has been the fact that with now everything switching to online, there has been a greatly increased emphasis in increasing internet accessibility to everybody. It's, it's, um, it's just a higher priority than it used to be. And that's excellent. I think that's a very good thing. And I certainly approve of that. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but Christopher, all kinds of accessibility come with that, right? I mean, the first issue is like, can they get, can they access the internet? Um, but no, all kinds of accessibility are things that I'm concerned about. And, and that's, that, to me, I just this is just one of our principles at Signum. We are less interested in sort of trying to create a like top notch, cutting edge, you know, cooler and better than everybody else kind of product and much more interested in making sure that we're putting forth a product that as many people as possible can uh, can use, can participate in. Um, uh, so whether, you know, whatever the obstacles to that might be, whether it's accessibility for the blind and deaf, whether it's uh, just, you know, getting ac the, the kinds of uh, computer hardware resources and internet uh, connection resources that, that, that people have, um, we try to, at Signum, kind of play as much as we can to sort of the least common denominator there as far as our tech is concerned. Um, and even, to be honest, like just the, the ease of use Right. I mean, there are a lot of students who are still really intimidated uh, by, um, you know, using complicated software. And, you know, we don't want to we don't want to go too far in that way and therefore leave a lot of students uh, behind. Um, but. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, David, exactly. It is uh, the Internet accessibility issue is a big deal. Uh, it's a big deal. But like I said, the one thing that it kind of encourages me is I think it's I think that's moving in the right direction. I think that uh, uh, a better priority is being placed on that kind of availability. So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, 
we'll see. Um, we'll see. Yeah, Steve and I agree that's actually a really interesting parallel. Um, uh, Stephen says virtual labs might fill some needs, but not all. Um, and he's uh, he makes the uh, uh, the comparison to flight simulators, uh, which can fulfill much of a pilot's training. Um, but you know that like you still need to actually be in an actual aircraft as well. Yeah, no, I agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I think the, I do think that some kind of hybrid experience, uh, is, uh, going to be best. Um, Okay, I wasn't planning to talk about this, uh, and I won't talk about it for long. But if I had to, um, um, if I had to say what I thought needed to happen, right? The best way for this to happen, the best way for this to happen would be for there to be much broader cooperation. I would love a higher education world in which instead of universities all like competing for students and trying to hold on to their own students, uh, you know, if instead we allowed students to take courses from multiple places to put together their own sets of credentials, um, uh, and therefore also physical facilities could therefore come into, would be much more easy to come into play if there was a, a large consortium of schools uh, which enabled students to take courses and to use facilities in one place and another, um, that would be, I think, an excellent model, which would help to solve a lot of the, uh, um, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the, the physical, like uh, the learning lab space. But anyway, anyway, um, Yes, Brian, I agree. Brian says higher education uh, really needs to move away from the model where you go to one institution at a certain period of your life between 18 and 22 and then you're done to a model where you can come back to acquire skills multiple times throughout your life. Yes, I agree. That's one of the things uh, that I think is one of the real real benefits of the kind of flexible credentialing thing instead of being like, yeah, like you have a degree and now you're done, right? Um, to be able to be offering skills on a modular basis, which people can be adding to as they go along. I, I absolutely agree. I think that that is the best model. And I would love to see that kind of model where, where people are not just saying, I'm going to take four years off from the rest of my life. I'm going to wait to start my independent adult life until I've had another, you know, four years of college or whatever. Um, and instead have their education be something that is a part of their life. Um, and, supportable by their life, that is financially supportable by their life, um, integratable in that way. Um, yeah, that I think is is a much better model for education. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, yep, good. Yeah, George, uh, I agree. Uh, geographical location not being an issue, that was one of the things that was... Um, a one of the primary motivations of Signum from the beginning uh, to one of the benefits that we saw. Let's have, you know, some online classroom space where it doesn't matter, where students don't have to sac You don't have to just do correspondence courses, right? You can do real courses, but it doesn't matter where you are, right? Um, yeah, exactly. Oh, George, you're in Johannesburg. I didn't realize that. That's cool. That's cool. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, now, Christopher, you're right. Uh, this is going to also require hacking the work model as well. Um, yeah, yeah. No, there will be there will be some interesting balance issues. But see, Christopher, I think here the working world is ahead, right? Um, the working world has already been doing a lot of thinking about training and how you, you know, do continuous training and education. And so there's this whole sort of like separate world of se of professional training, which is totally apart generally from the higher education world. And I don't think that should be. Um, I think that there's there, there, there. And then, of course, again, the consequences uh, of the covid situation um, as far as work life balance. Christopher, you know, the and certainly I would say work life boundaries, right? Those I think are those are kind of changing forever right now as we speak. Um, so in a world in which more people are going to be working from home and that kind of thing anyway, as I don't see that changing back to the way it was before COVID, um, it's going to create a situation where I think it will be easier and more and more employers will see the real value uh, of having that of working that integration. Um, uh, again, there's, there's, th th there is stuff that's going to have to change. This is not, uh, this is, this, this will be a gradual process. All I'm saying is I think this is, I think this is the direction that things are, uh, that things are, things are moving in. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so, okay. Sorry, so I, I'm, I won't I won't go on any longer about this, but uh, but yeah, these are the things, these are the conversations that I've been having and and really interested in and thinking about a lot for uh, for a lot of years. But this is not stuff. Higher education as a whole is really locked into its ruts, is really locked into its model, and higher education as a whole is not good at changing things quickly, right? Uh, adapting, being adaptable and being agile and swiftly adaptable. Higher education is on the very lower end of the scale when it comes to, you know, businesses and institutions that are able to change and adapt to changing environments. Um, so, you know, I strongly, uh, uh, I, I, th that's why I think this is going to be this is one of the major challenges that lies ahead of higher education. Again, even those that succeed in surviving uh, the current crisis. Um, but again, we're 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 ready. We're I, I'm I would love to have more conversations with other institutions of higher education to talk about, you know, working towards these kinds. Of, you know, saying like instead of. Instead of like doing rival degree programs, let's work together. You guys do some things really well. We do some things really well. Let's let's put together a series of credentials and enable our students to be able to to travel back and forth, virtually speaking. Right. Um, I don't know. There's a lot of potential uh, for creating a much better, much more forward thinking environment uh, in higher education. But we'll see. We'll see how we go. Um, yeah. Oh, my goodness, Kit. Secondary education is much more locked in than higher ed. Yeah, absolutely. If there's one if there's one group of people who who change less swiftly and less readily than higher education administrators, it's local politicians. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. Whew. My goodness. Yeah. No, you're so right about that. But again, there I'm just um, all I Primarily, my relationship with K through 12 education is mostly just kind of staring with wide eyes uh, from a safe distance. Uh, I, yeah, it's 
Mm-hmm. I agree with you. <laughs> I agree with you. <laughs> okay. But anyway, moving on and back to the text. So uh, we were doing the notes on the Athrobeth, looking at uh, some of Tolkien's uh, explanations. And remember, this is Tolkien doing commentary on, well, n- notes on his commentary on the Athrobeth. Now, the meat of the commentary itself, the text of the commentary itself, is a lot of sort of contextualizing of the story, right? For somebody who doesn't know the rest of his Silmarillion material, that seems relatively clear. Though, as I was arguing last time, I think there are moments there where we can begin to see it almost sound like he's beginning to move into a third age frame, you know, like a book of a red book of Westmarch frame uh, for some of this stuff. Um, again, I'm not saying he he goes all the way there, but um, but I'm wondering if that was in the back of his head, because there are some places where it, it really kind of sounds like that. Um, but um, anyway, OK, so um, uh yeah. Oh, sorry, Bruce. Thank you for that. Bruce was that back to Bruce's two hundred eighty million dollar shortfall. Twenty five percent of their annual operating budget. Twenty five percent. It's a it's a big hit for a business to absorb. Uh, to absorb. Um, uh, yeah. I wonder if your state legislature is willing to give them an extra two hundred eighty million dollars this year. I doubt it. <laughs> it's hard. It's really hard. Uh Anyway, okay, but so commentaries. So we were looking at uh, we're looking at his notes, and then we're gonna. I'm hoping to get to uh, the dis, the, uh, the the tale of Adonel, the the uh, the tale, the narrative of the fall in the extended Numenorean version, which he talks about here. Uh, this is in note nine. Now, longer ascensions of the Athrobeth, evidently edited under Numenorean influence, make her give under pressure a more precise answer. Some are very brief, some longer. That is an answer to the question of what, how, an answer to Finrod's question, what did you do to anger Eru? Remember when he, he, he uh, brings it down to this, right? Um, and she won't respond, and he kind of lets it go. Well, apparently in some versions of the story, he doesn't let it go, right? Some are very brief, some longer. All agree, however, in making the cause of the disaster the acceptance by men of Melkor as king or king and god. In one version, a complete legend, compressed in time scale, is given explicitly as a Numenorean tradition, for it makes Andreth say, This is the tale that Adonel of the House of Hador told me. The Numenoreans were largely, and their non-Elvish traditions mainly, derived from the people of Marach, of whom the House of Hador were the chieftains. The legend bears certain resemblances to the Numenorean traditions concerning the part played by Sauron in the downfall of Numenor. But this does not prove that it is entirely a fiction of post-downfall days. It is no doubt mainly derived from actual lore of the people of Marach, quite independent of the Athrobeth. Added note. Nothing is hereby asserted concerning its truth, historical or otherwise. The operations of Sauron naturally and inevitably resembled or repeated those of his master. That a people in possession of such a legend or tradition should have later been deluded by Sauron is sad, but, in the view of human history generally, not incredible. Indeed, if fish had fish lore and wise fish, it is probable that the business of anglers would be very little hindered. (laughs) I love that sentence. 
That's one of my favorite sentences in this entire book. Indeed, if fish had fish lore and wise fish, it is probable that the business of anglers would be very little hindered. I just love that sentence. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Goodness. My apologies. I keep getting distracted by this because... I, the last thing I do before I start the broadcast is make sure to have the Twitch broadcast set up. And there, of course, my screen is already being shared. So I apologize for that. Um, okay. Right. Sorry. There's the actual text that I was just reading. Um, okay. Now, first of all, the first thing to notice here, and this kind of goes back to my third age point. Um, he's not here speaking from an explicitly third age perspective, but you notice that he is... It's almost like he can't help himself, right? He is talking about this text. He's talking about the textual tradition of this text, right? In one version, a complete legend is given. Uh, you know, uh, longer recensions evidently edited under Numenorean influence, right? So the story of the, this, you know, so he wrote this thing, right, called the Athrobeth. And now when he's talking about it to his friend, right, that he's sending it, whoever it is that he wrote this commentary, you know, whoever was the, exactly the target audience of this commentary, uh, he, like, can't help himself, right, from inventing a textual tradition of this story that he's written, right? Um, so this is another thing that leads me to, that supports my thinking, uh, that he might be slipping into uh, like one step deeper into that whole game, essentially, by having the first person narrator of this commentary, the first person writer of this commentary, be also within that, be a third, you know, a, a late third age, early fourth age hobbit reflecting back on the early textual tradition of this thing that they have received, presumably in Gondor, right? Um, it would it would no doubt have come through Pippin's uh, uh, time in Gondor and that the, you know, the communication between the Shire and uh, Minas Tirith and the archives, the, you know, the royal archives in Gondor uh, gave them access to some of this, uh, this ancient Numenorean traditions, which they have, you know, preserved in their lore. You could say like it's, it writes itself, right? It's like, it just, it just all starts to, starts to flow uh, at this, uh, uh, at this point. Um, yes, Josiah says, Tolkien's inner philologist seems to demand that a story, like a language, must have a history. Yes, exactly. That's what story would be complete without it, right? You can't just leave a naked story sitting on the page like that, right? You have to have the story of how the story came to be or it's not really a story, right? Um, yeah, yeah. No, that really does seem to be how Tolkien's mind works. So we can see it working uh, in this way. Notice how he's contextualizing the tale of Adonel, which we're going to go on and talk about in a little bit. Um, he says uh, the... Um, notice how he... There's an initial objection that he's prepared for, right? Um, so, okay, it may be thought that this tale of Adonel, which of course is preserved by the Numenorean. So when we say it's, uh, it's, it is a Numenorean tradition, well, by definition, that has to mean 
a tradition which which survived among the exiles from Numenor, right? Because if it were, you know, there were any number of Numenorian traditions which doubtless came to a sharp and sudden end when Numenor fell beneath the sea, right? So if it's a Numenorian tradition that we know about, then that means by definition it's a Numenorian tradition which was continued or at least remembered and preserved by the Numenorian exiles who came across the sea, which means, therefore, by definition, any Numenorean tradition which has been, which still exists, is in some sense, if not in its origin, then at least in its transmission post downfall, right? Which means that it could be influenced by the events of the downfall of Numenor. And on this particular subject, this is a this is a sore point, right? The question of the fate of men and the question of death and longevity and what happens to men after they die and what is the destiny of men and uh, how should they be related to the Valar and, and uh, how are they related to elves and all of these things. These are sensitive points, right, for the exiles of Numenor in the immediately post Akalabaith situation. So uh, you can easily... And so reading, knowing that stuff, having been given that context... Uh, for the Athrobeth, and, and especially for the tale of Adonel, and then going to the tale of Adonel uh, and reading it and saying, well, gosh, boy, hmm, this sounds a whole lot like the story of Sauron's corruption of Numenor, right? Oh, so they, he, so like the evil one came among them and convinced them to worship the darkness. And this led to their being cast out and, and, you know, like things getting all messed up and destroyed. Well, yeah. I can easily imagine that uh, Newman... So basically, to what extent can the tale of Adonel be understood to be historically valid? Now, that's a fake question, because this is a work of fiction, right? It's, none of that stuff really happens. Uh, but Tolkien is raising all of these questions, right? But notice his, his answer to the theoretical objections of putative scholars, right, who might question the validity of the tale of Adeno, um, is, he says uh, that um, uh, it, it's, it's it, the, the similarity, right, the similarity between what the tale of Adeno says happened with Morgoth back in the day uh, at the time of the fall of man, um, you know, I, in and around the greater Hildorian area um, and what happened at Numenor. The similarity between those two things does not in any way um, disprove the uh, historical validity of it, right? You cannot assert that it. this must not be a, 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 a valid historical account um, a credible historical account because of its similarities. The similarities, the parallels between the two cannot be brought forward as reason in itself to condemn the, you know, potential uh, validity or historicity of the original, of the tale of Adonel. Because, of course, uh, the operations of Sauron naturally and inevitably resembled or repeated those of his master. Um, of course, there were parallels. Of course there were parallels. And then notice, of course, how he implicitly responds to, he doesn't state the objection, but he implies the objection in what he next says, right? The, obje the objection would be, if they had this story, 
if it were a widespread Numenorean tradition, if lots of people knew the tale of Adano, how could they be so stupid as to fall for exactly the same thing a second time? And the answer is, people are always that stupid. <laughs> Do you really need examples? Do you really need to be convinced that just because something happened before and people knew that it happened before, they were not going to like that, that the mere knowledge of what happened before was going to prevent it happening again. But there's real reason to think that's going to happen. Uh, no, it is much more probable that the business of anglers would be very little hindered. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. And remember, of course, this is itself. Well, not a theme. Um an issue raised by Andreth herself during the Athrobeth. Remember that she said, uh, she says on several occasions that uh, the wise among men know, you know, they, 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 they know certain things about their history and they know certain things about theology and stuff like that. Um, but they are generally not listened to by the rest of the people. Um, uh, so that, yeah. Yeah, again, and, and um, Finrod himself seems to kind of make the mistake of assuming that um, the actions of, like, the the migration into the West, for instance, was motivated uh, by the, you know, by the knowledge of the wise. And she was like, yeah, yeah, no, no. Um, the wise people have been telling them not to bother <laughs> for some time, but they just, they, they just won't listen, right? That's kind of how it works. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's true, Brian, that many people don't know their history and are thus doomed to repeat it. But of course, it is equally true that many of those who do know their history are all also, I don't know about doomed, but definitely do repeat it, even if they do know it. Right. So, um, yes, uh, again, um, the business of ang anglers uh, would be very little hindered uh, if there were wise fish who were instructing all the other fish about uh, what fishermen are, what they do, and how they entrap fish. Um, uh, if there were such wise fish, there would doubtless still be as many fish caught as ever. Um, but Michael, you are right to say that he also, Tolkien also says that its truth cannot be asserted, right? Nothing is hereby asserted concerning its truth, historical or otherwise, right? We, we don't we don't know. All he's saying is the similarity, the parallel to Sauron's corruption of Numenor doesn't prove that it's a later creation. Right. Um, that's the only thing that he resists. He doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't make any claims about it. Right. This might be this might be true. This might not be true. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Jocelyn, I agree. There's a lot of magical thinking involved there, right? Like you you know about something, but you think that it won't or can't happen to you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And Florian, I agree. 3,500 years is a very, very long time. Um, uh, so, yes, it is. Uh, it is a very long time. Um, and so even if the tale of Adonel was still in existence, as it apparently was, as it survived. Um, that doesn't mean that it's something that is going to be the constant um, 
meditation of everybody in Numenor 3,500 years after they brought the Tale of Adana with them to Numenor. Absolutely. Um, okay. Let's keep going. <clears throat> this is actually back to the main text now. This is not a note. Uh, this is another one of those, uh, uh, one of the passages. There weren't that many, but there were a few passages from the body of the commentary that struck me as really interesting. Melkor was not just a local evil on Earth, nor a guardian angel of Earth who had gone wrong. Who's he, who's he winking at out of the corner of his eye right there? You get the reference? Nor a guardian angel of Earth who had gone wrong? Yes. He is not Earth's Oyarsa. That's from Out of the Silent Planet, right, in Perelandra. Um, yes. He's, uh, notice that he is, he is specifying, he's like, don't, 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 don't mistake this for the Lewis cosmos, right? This is different. This is a different story. Um, he doesn't, doesn't explicitly point uh, to Lewis, but that's a pretty direct, that concept, a guardian angel of Earth who had gone wrong, is a, is a, it's not a unique concept, but it's a little idiosyncratic. And, and uh, I think he's clearly looking straight at Lewis when he says that. Uh, again, emphasizing my story and his story are not the same. Melkor was not just a local evil on Earth, nor a guardian angel of Earth who had gone wrong. He was the spirit of evil, arising even before the making of Ea. His attempt to dominate the structure of Ea, and of Arda in particular, and altered the, the designs of Eru, which governed all the operations of the faithful Valar, had introduced evil, or a tendency to aberration from the design, into all physical matter of Arda. It was for this reason, no doubt, that he had been totally successful with men, but only partially so with elves, who remained as a people unfallen. His power was wielded over matter, and through it. But by nature, the Fear of men were in much less strong control of their Hoar than was the case for the elves. Individual elves might be seduced to a kind of minor Melkorism, desiring to be their own masters in Arda, and to have things their own way, leading in extreme cases to rebellion against the tutelage of the Valar. But not one had ever entered the service or allegiance of Melkor himself, nor, nor ever denied the existence and absolute supremacy of Eru. Some dreadful things of this sort, Finrod guesses, men must have done as a whole. But Andreth does not reveal what were men's traditions on this point. Okay, um, this is uh, of very great interest in things. So first he starts talking about, so this is the first point of interest of this passage to me, was his general statement of something that we had observed and concluded before. Um, we had been emphasizing in our earlier discussions the importance, the significance within Tolkien's thought within Tolkien's mythology and even within Tolkien's theology of Middle-earth here, how important it was that Melkor's uh, corruption of, of, of Arda, right, Cor corruption of Ea itself, starts back at the very beginning, right? It's not subsequent to or consequent of the fall of man, but far predates it, um, and is therefore far of far more universal application uh, than uh, than the uh, than evil generally seen to be from the beginning uh, uh, in um, uh, in traditional in Christian theology. Um, yes, Matt, minor Melkorism is a really awesome phrase, and I think uh, there are lots of places where one can see 
examples of someone being seduced to a kind of minor Melchorism, uh, desiring to be their own masters in Arda. Uh, that is uh, quite a common thing, actually. Um, yes, yes. Um, uh, yeah, now, George, I was thinking about that. Um, really, hang on, George, I'll come back to that in a second. Yeah, so again, so first of all, we have the, the, the overall statement, uh, or, you know, sort of recap of what it means, what the marring of Arda means, the influence that Melkor had uh, for evil over all of creation. Right. Um, that he introduced into everything in Ea a tendency to aberration from the design. Right. Iluvatar's design uh, is um, the designs of Eru are what governed all the operations of the faithful Valar. They knew the designs of Eru and they were working to shape Ea in compliance with the designs of Eru. But Melkor had introduced into everything in Ea a tendency uh, to aberration from that design. That's, so that's a, a really um, emphatic and clear statement about what the marring of Arda means. Now, he goes on to apply this to men and elves, and the point is, elves are more fallen as, or sorry, Men are more fallen as a people than elves are. The elves are unfallen. This doesn't mean that they're sinless. It doesn't mean that they're innocent. And this is something that is, I think, it's interesting. And notice that he, um, he, uh, he, he puts quotation marks around unfallen here, right? He's only using that term sort of approximately and even kind of metaphorically. Um, when we talk about the fall of man, when, you know, when, when we're applying the word fallen to a race of sentient creatures, normally humans, right? Um, that, the, the traditional use of that term fallen means, or rather, let me start with unfallen, which is the word he uses. Unfallen means existing in sinless innocence, right? Not doing anything wrong. Um, living in and and not being uh, not having any experience of evil, like of like doing evil, right? Um, to be in a state of innocence, he says that elves are, as a people, unfallen. Does that mean he's saying that they never do anything wrong? No. Clearly, he's not saying that. He's not trying to argue that no elf in the Silmarillion ever did a bad thing, right? That's pretty clear. Um, uh, so the kinslaying, all of the kinslayings can happen, and yet he can still say that the elves remain as a people unfallen. So it's clear, clearly not that he means they're unfallen in the sense of it's not they, they can't even sin. They have they have the inability to sin. That's not what he means. Right. They clearly can make those can make bad choices and often do make bad choices. Um, so um, what then does he mean when he says that they're on? If he, he doesn't mean it in that sense. In what sense does he mean it? Um, well, another way to think about or to define the word unfallen would be innocence, as I said. Right. So not so one way would be an inability to sin. 
that's clearly not applicable. Another way would be um, an innocence of evil, right? Not even not even experiencing a temptation to do anything wrong because, uh, you know, you just like that the whole the design and the designs of Eru are like, that's how your mind works, right? It would never even occur to you. Um, you would never even imagine, um, you know, introducing any aberration from that design. Um, you experience no temptation to do wrong, right? And I don't think that that's what he means either. Um, I think they did experience, but however, with a proviso here. I'd say no, but with a proviso. On the one hand, um, it's I, I think it's clearly not true that the elves are going around without any temptation to evil, without, you know, that, that, that I, I don't think that they are innocent of evil in that sense, in any kind of absolute sense. However, in a relative sense, yes. Remember, this is very like what he was saying about things like, uh, like sexual morality among the elves, right? Um, that elves were naturally monogamous. They, they, they didn't have to continually resist the temptation to cheat on their spouses. They just, they didn't. Um, that's not how they're wired. That's not how they work. They, so in that sense, they are compared to humans in something more like what we would call an unfallen state. Um, uh, there were more ways in which they, um, uh, there are more ways in which they just, their natural inclination was towards like following the designs of Eru, right? Um, uh, they could be seduced to a kind, in, individual elves might be seduced to a kind of minor Melkorism. They might individually fall. They could make bad choices, right? Uh, they could desire to be their own masters in Arda and to have things their own way and then in the end rebel against the tutelage of the Valar. There are certain examples out there of such behavior in the history of elves, right? But that's not the same thing as saying that elves in general are prone to sin. So I think the way in which he's talking about unfall it's not absolute innocence. It's certainly not an inability to sin. What he is pointing to is the that elves are much less inclined in their own natures towards sin. How could how does he explain that from within the framework of his mythology, of his theology? His answer is in the difference of the relationship between the Fear and the Hroar of elves. Now, those of you who know the New, New Testament will uh, be able to remember quickly um, the kinds of things that he's picking up on here. Right, The New Testament does have some things to say about the spirit and the flesh, right? Um, and which one is willing and which one is weak, right? Um, I, you know, I, of course, uh, you know, those of you who are familiar with it know that I'm thinking about Romans chapter seven here, especially where Paul uh, talks about um, how, you know, like the, 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 how his, his, his will is set, like his, he doesn't use the word fea, of course, right? His fea is set towards doing good. Like he wants to do good, uh, but yet like he keeps not doing it, um, you know, and, and, you know, he has that famous exclamation, right? Um, 
the the good that I would do that I don't do, but the evil that I would not do that I do. Right. And he talks about this, how how there is a there is a war inside him. Right. That's what he uh, uh, describes um, in a uh, famous example of ancient interiority. Uh, but um, Tolkien seems to be picking up on this concept, essentially, and he's putting this into his terms. There's there's the Thea and the Hroa, right? And within his Middle-earth theology slash mythology, the Hroa is where that tendency to aberration from the design enters in, right? So what is being fallen, right? What is the mechanism for being fallen? It's the marring of Arda. It's all about the marring of Arda, right? That all comes back. That is the consequence of Melkor's rebellion is this tendency to aberration from the design. So everything that participates in that has that. Everything, everything in Arda has that. The bodies of elves and of men, their froar, are derived from Arda and therefore are also marred as well. So... Um, why is it that elves are different from men? And how is it, like, in what ways are they different from men? It's about the relationship between the Fea and the Hroa. In elves, the Fea is much more firmly driving the bus, right? Uh, with men, much less so. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, um... By nature, the fair of men were in much less strong control of their roar than was the case with elves. Um, yeah, no, it's right. Yeah, Giant98 on the Twitch chat there. It, you're, it, it's not about like that their roar, the roar of the roar of elves are weaker, um, but that the maybe the fair of men are weaker. Um Possibly. Wherever the difference exactly lies, the primary difference that he's pointing to is that for wh whatever might be like the differences in the balance, the balance is clearly different, right? Um, the fair of men are not in strong control of their hroar, and so their marred hroar are leading them into all manner of trouble. From their hroar, they inherit the marring, right? This, this aberration from the design. And so they have all kinds of problems. Um, with uh, uh, with uh, adhering to the design, whereas elves don't have many fewer problems, I should say, with adhering to the design. Um, now, Matt says it would seem that elves are more culpable when they do go bad and, and uh, commit minor Melkorisms. Um, yeah, I would think so. Sure. I would definitely go along with that. Um, yes, yes. Yeah, it is in that way a sort of a bigger a bigger deal. Um, yeah, yeah, um, exactly. Um, yeah, Florian says men had a lot of kinslings in their history. For the elves, it's it's a it's a special occasion. <laughs> I like I like that phrase applied. Yes, the kinsling was a special occasion, a, a particular special in particular ways, right? Yes, exactly. Um, so this is, I th again, I, I, I think this is a really brilliant way to, you know, notice how this even comes back. Notice how this retroactively serves as a gloss 
not only on stuff from the Silmarillion, not even only on stuff from the Lord of the Rings, but even on stuff from The Hobbit, right? What does it mean when the narrator in The Hobbit says, but elves they are and remain, and that means good people? Capital G, capital P. What does that mean exactly, right? That they're good. Um, well, now we learn what it means, right? Um, he has now uh, he has now retroactively helped us to understand that in what is, you know, this sort of cascading wave uh, of 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 retcon, right? This sort of, uh, or rather, to to shift into a much more apt metaphor, um, this the statements that he is now making here resonate outward, you know, in these rippling sound waves all the way back through all of these things that he wrote and bring them all together and help to make sense of all of them. That's how you know Tolkien is super good at this stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Exactly, Florian. This is a reason why you can still have fun rolling barrels into a river after a thousand years of rolling barrels every day. Yes, this is a corollary to the lack of wonder, right? Remember, elves don't get tired of things. Um, uh, I bet you that the same elves are going to be just as delighted at the sound that barrels make when they fall into a river. Uh, they'll be just as, uh, just as delighted by that uh, in 10,000 years. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, okay, so, um, <laughs> Stephen says elves would be a terrible market for gaming. Man, elves would be, would be an advertiser's nightmare, full stop, right? I mean, I uh, think about all of the, all of the premises of, you know, modern, uh, salesmanship, uh, and how that would have to be altered, uh, to market to an elvish audience. Oh man totally different. Um, uh, and yes, Florian, you're absolutely right. This also helps to explain, this is another way to sort of show why so many of the, um, the natural tendencies, right? The sort of the natural sinful inclinations of humans, things like, uh, ambition, envy, greed, um, are not going to be, they're not even going to feel tempted towards that, right? Like why greed? You know, envy, ambition. Seriously, none of those things are even going to necessarily make a lot of sense to a lot of elves. Certainly not in the same way that they do for humans. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, yep, yep. Um, right, and David, I agree. Even, I mean, Feanor is a really good illustration, right? He doesn't lust for power in the way that men do. Right. No, he, his issues are different, right? Even I mean, he has issues, right? But his issues are not, are not the same. Um, uh, yeah, well, no, they, they, you're right that elves do go out and found kingdoms and such, but again, it's not about ambition in the same way. It's not, uh, I, again, I'm not saying that they don't, I wouldn't say that they are completely innocent of, and I'm using the word innocent now in the modern, uh, you know, sort of judicial sense rather than, uh, 
thinking about unfallen and, you know, ignorant of evil. Um, I wouldn't say that they're, com- they're, they're, they're never, never guilty. No elf, no elf has ever been guilty of ambition in any sense. Um, but it's not going to be one of their prevailing sil- that prevailing sins, that prevailing, a temptation that they have to resist. This desire to gain power over others, to increase your power and influence. Uh, that's not going to be the same temptation, I think, Nancy. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, a lot of the thinking that you guys are doing now is exactly the kind of thinking that I, not only that Tolkien seems to have been doing himself, but seems to be encouraging by talking about this stuff this way, by explaining these things in this way. But anyway, I want to come back, George, to the point that you made a long time ago. Uh, this question was, what about Maeglin? What about Maeglin? Um Individual elves might be seduced to a kind of minor Melkorism, design, desiring to be their own masters in Arda and to have things their own way, leading in extreme cases to rebellion against the tutelage of the Valar, but not one had ever entered the service or allegiance of Melkor himself, nor ever denied the existence and absolute supremacy of Eru. Okay, so um, what about Maeglin? Great question. I was thinking about that too when I was just reading it aloud. I was, I was, I was thinking about Maeglin. Does Maeglin do this? Does Maeglin enter the allegiance of Melkor himself, denying the existence and absolute supremacy of Eru? Does he worship Melkor as God? I don't think he does. He does betray, he does choose his own preservation over the preservation of Gondolin. He does seek to aggrandize himself. There you go, Nancy. Maeglin's an ambitious elf, right? He does give in to that desire for ambition, but it's not just ambition, it's also revenge. Um, uh, anyway, I, there, there are some interesting distinctions that I would make even there. Um, but... Um, uh, but yeah, exactly, David. That's just how I would say it. David Atley says that Maeglin used Morgoth for his own ends. Yes, exactly. So he did, I mean, look, what he did was very bad. Maeglin is one of the foremost examples of elves who have been seduced to a minor Melkorism, right? Of elves who desire to be their own masters and to have things their own way. Um, he is, I mean, if there's a fallen elf in the... First age, Maeglin. You know, a lot of people think about Feanor first. Maeglin's ahead of him in the queue, no question, right? What Maeglin does is worse, in in many ways, than what Feanor does. But uh, people would argue with me about that, I'm sure. But anyway, I still would put Maeglin ahead of Feanor in the in the queue myself. Um, but, um. Anyway, I would say, um, so no, no, Nancy, when I say he is only doing it like for his own purposes and stuff, I'm not trying to say that it makes it a lot better. I'm not, I'm not making excuses for Maeglin. All I'm saying is he doesn't do this, right? He doesn't worship Melkor as God and deny the existence and absolute supremacy of Eru, um, 
what Finrod guesses that men did was that. Um, and that elves never did that. Elves never did. You know, there are some elves who did very bad things. Maeglin did very bad things. Fanor did very bad things. Kelgorm and Kurovin did very bad things, right? Uh, there are many elves who did very bad things. But, um, I mean, hey, Thingol did some things that weren't so great, right? Um, but none of the elves ever did that. Ever denied Eru and worshipped Melkor in his place. Accepted Melkor as king and god. That was not something that any of the elves, not even Maeglin, ever did. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, right, James says, there's no first age elf running around saying, I am the mouth of Melkor. Yeah, no, 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 they're not. No, they're not. Now, yeah, Stephen, um, Stephen says, what about the, um, elves turn into orcs theory? Does this suggest that Tolkien is now going back against that entirely? Um, yeah. <laughs> It's a problem, isn't it, Stephen? Yeah, I agree. Um, you'd think that if uh, there were elves that had been corrupted and turned into orcs who clearly have entered the service and allegiance of Melkor himself, pretty emphatically, right? Um, presumably even to the denying the existence and absolute supremacy of Eru. I, I, I bet orcs do that, Right. Um, so does this suggest that, um, does this suggest that Tolkien is, that the, the needle swinging back in the other direction here, that he's ditching the idea of, um, uh, elves of the orcs deriving from the elves. Um, right. Florian says, would you still call them elves though? Well, I mean... There might come a point at which you would say they're no longer officially elves, but they were at some point, right? So uh, it still makes a pretty honk, big honking uh, uh, exception to the statement. Uh, what was it? Um, yeah, no, not one had ever entered the service or allegiance of Melkor himself. Asterisk. Except all of the ones which were corrupted to become orcs, right? I mean, it's a pretty big exception to that very emphatic statement, not one had ever entered. Um, that's, uh, that's a big deal. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so this is, um, Okay, so Cecilia is saying, you know, Melkor corrupted them, so in their original state they would not have chosen to be corrupted. You know, they would not have uh, have uh, entered the servants and allegiance of Melkor himself. Uh, and so, Cecilia, that would be sort of like how they wouldn't count as, as elves anymore, right? Essentially. Um, and, um, uh, yeah, and Michael's asking questions about their um, their their own volition. I hear that, but this doesn't solve the problem. Right. I mean, if we're going to say that Melkor can, through his own unilateral power, abrogate the free will of the children of any of the children of Iluvatar, then we're in trouble. Right. 
I, this is gets us back to things that were making Finrod throw his hands up in the air and be like, ah, well, then Melkor, if this is true, then, I mean, again, it's not quite the same. When he talks about Melkor, when Finrod talks about Melkor, what he's talking about is Melkor being able to change the destiny of men, right? If he can reprogram humanity uh, and, and uh, override the destiny, the eternal destiny that that uh, that Iluvatar laid upon them, then yeah, trying to fight against if if Melkor can do that, then trying to fight against him is uh, is uh, is pointless. That was remember that was Finrod, um, but um, uh, um, but um, so this is not the same as that, but it's still a pretty big deal, right? The free will of the children of Iluvatar. This is this is a big deal, right? Um, Maeglin exerted his free will, right? Maeglin's free will was not abrogated. He was captured. He was tortured. He was daunted by the eyes of Melkor. You know, Melkor's uh, uh, oppressed his will with, oppressed Maeglin's will with his own. Um, but Maeglin still had a choice. He could have died instead of, uh, I mean, yeah, that was his only option. But it was still an option, right? He chose of his free will uh, to betray Gondolin in order not only to save himself, but to aggrandize himself, to serve his own ends. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I agree, Karita, as you say, and as... Uh, um, uh, Someone else was also. Oh yeah, Matt was also saying before. Yeah, it just uh, it. What it means is that the orcs are a problem. <laughs> continue to be a problem. I mean, there's just no way around the fact that it's a really big problem. Um, yep, yep. Yeah, Karina says, I feel like orcs are to Tolkien what that one sticky door in my house is for me. I do what I can. Uh, you know, I, 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 I can do what I want to fix up the house, but that door just doesn't act right. Yeah. It's kind of like that. It's kind of like that. Um, yep. Yep. Um, anyway. Okay. Uh, let's keep going. This is back to the notes now. Matter is not regarded as evil or opposed to spirit. So let's not be confused about that. Um, Melkor may have introduced that tendency to aberration from the design into everything in Arda, but it doesn't mean that matter is evil intrinsically. Matter was wholly good in origin. It remained a creature of Eru and still largely good, and indeed self-healing when not interfered with. That is, when the latent evil introduced by Melkor was not deliberately roused and used by evil minds. Melkor had concentrated his attention on matter, because spirits could only be dominated completely by fear. And fear was most easily exerted through matter, especially in the case of the incarnates, whom he most desired to subjugate. For example, by fear that material things were... Sorry... For example, by fear that material things that were loved might be destroyed, or the fear, in incarnates, that their bodies might be hurt. Melkor also used and perverted for his purposes the fear of Eru, 
fully or vaguely understood. But this was more difficult and perilous, and required more cunning. Lesser spirits might be lured by love or admiration of himself and his powers, and so led at last into a posture of rebellion against Eru. Their fear of him might then be darkened, so that they adhered to Melkor as a captain and protector, becoming at last too terrified to return to the allegiance of Eru, even after they had discovered Melkor and had begun to hate him. Oh man, there is so much here. So, first, is matter evil? No, don't be thinking that spirit is good and matter is evil. There have been many philosophies that have said this. Um, that is not uh, what he is saying, and he emphasizes this. Matter was wholly good in origin. Um, it was corrupted, right? It was marred, but marred is not the same thing as made evil, right? Um, matter itself is a creature of Eru. It's a thing that, that Eru created and is still therefore largely good if it's not interfered with. It is possible there is latent evil in all matter because of the marring of Melkor. And that latent evil can be stirred up. Um, but um, but, it's, uh, but it's not intrinsically evil. It is, however, Melkor's favorite tool. Spirits could only be dominated completely by fear. By the way, this after he's been using the word fear all the way through, like raise your hand if you got confused and had to reread this paragraph like four times because you kept... I keep doing that. Um, uh, okay. So... Yeah. Oh, man. I... Florian, do the orcs have free will? I'm so not going there. Um, uh, what we're seeing is that Tolkien doesn't know the answer to that question yet, right? He's still not really working it out. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So anyway, okay. Um Spirits could only be dominated completely by fear. It is only fear. Fear and surprise. No, no, sorry. It is only fear uh, that leads spirits to be completely dominated. Um, that can be most easily uh, in incarnates. So how do you get at the fea of an incarnate creature. If your goal is to dominate his spirit, is to dominate his or her fea, how do you manage it? Right? What's your strategy? Remember what Niena? Was it Niena in the debate of the Valar? I think it was Niena who was saying that the individual fear of the elves were stronger than Mandos to, to, to endure, right? They are like, they are unassailable from the outside. You can't crack them. Um, but, but, um, but, you can affect them, right? How do you affect them? How do you 
bring them to domination? Melkor's answer is fear. That is the way you dominate them. And how can you subject them to fear? If they're incarnate, it's easy. Matter uh, is the way in which fear is most easily exerted. So, if you have both a body and a spirit, threaten, entice. Uh, you know, there are lots of ways in which you can deal with the body in order to bring about fear in the Fea. Um, you know, Fear, fear. And um, so that's why Melkor focuses on matter. That's why matter is his... Um, his uh, uh, tool of choice in recruiting Fear. Then, of course, he goes on. Um, uh, then he goes on to explain how does he get. If that's true, if you can only dominate other spirits through fear, and fear is best operated through matter, what about other spirits? How does he ever convince the Balrogs to fall? How did he ever convince Sauron to follow him? How does how does that work? Right? How does he get other spirits to follow him? And he describes uh, the way it happens. Right? Um, first, by luring lesser spirits to love and admire himself and his powers. Right? So he doesn't threaten them. He doesn't begin by threat, because what can he do? What can he do to them? What, are they going to torture them? They don't have bodies. Right? He brings them to love him. Right? To take the fear of God, right? The fear of Eru, and to begin to attach that to him instead of to Eru. Right? To bring their love or admiration to himself and his powers, and to follow him therefore, into a posture of a rebellion against Eru. And then their fear of him is darkened, so that they adhere to Melkor as a captain and protector, becoming at last too terrified to return to the allegiance of Eru. You can't go back now, right? None of the spirits... Balrogs don't disbelieve in Eru. Right? They, 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 they haven't been deceived. They haven't. Sauron is not ignorant of Eru's existence. Right? He was not convinced by Melkor that he, Melkor, was actually God. Sauron was brought to rebel against Eru and against Eru's representatives um, by some other process. Right? Not by deception. Of that kind, right? Um, but uh, by first adhering to him for positive reasons, and then he warps and twists that, bringing them with him into rebellion, and now they're committed. You're going to go back? How can you go back? Right? They become too terrified to return to the allegiance of Eru, even after they had discovered Melkor and had begun to hate him. And thus, hate and love, hatred and fear are combined to keep them to their loyalty. But this is also why 
among spirits, there can be no true loyalty to Melkor. Sauron doesn't love Melkor still. Sauron fears Melkor. He's not loyal to Melkor. He is afraid of Melkor um, and reliant upon Melkor as captain and protector. Um, but the idea of anyone devoting, especially a spiritual creature, devoting selfless service to Melkor, knowing him for what he is, um, Tolkien says that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yep. Um, and yes, you're right, Marianne. The, uh, we can see some of this uh, in the Valaquenta as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, George, I was also, I was definitely just thinking of that verse from James, uh, James chapter two. Uh, uh, you believe there is one God? You know, you do well. The demons also believe and tremble. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, Julie was uh, uh, remembering that as well. Exactly, exactly. Um, Florian says, I wish we had a redemption story about an evil spirit turning back to Eru. Yes, yes, that would be fun. Um, yeah, and no, Sharon, I don't, we never do hear of a, the closest we get to a redemption story is the reference to the fact that after the War of Wrath, Sauron kind of actually repented, right? Um, he backslid, right? But that his, uh, his repentance was perhaps not at first wholly feigned. That's the closest we get to any actual redemption story. Does it mean it never happened? I don't know. Yeah. I, 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 Florian, that's interesting. Um, Florian points to some, it Ose, right? As somebody who um, takes the first step down the rebellion path, but turns around and comes back. Yeah, Ase is a good example, but of course he, he, he didn't get very far down that road at all, right? Um, but yeah, yeah. Um, right, Nancy says arguably Aule too, but yeah, I would say that Aule got even less far down the road. Um, if if Ase only took one step down the road and then turned around and came back, Aule only just kind of paused and looked down the road, right? And, uh, and decided not to go down it, uh, at all. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but, um, anyway, uh, so we'll, yeah. Okay. But, but yeah, so that's, that's all super fascinating. Okay. The most tantalizing paragraph in the notes from my money. This is actually already glimpsed in the Aina Windele, in which reference is made to the flame imperishable. This appears to mean the creative activity of Eru, in some sense distinct from or within him, by which things could be given a real and independent, though derivative and created, existence. The flame imperishable is sent out from Eru to dwell in the heart of the world, and the world then is on the same plane as the Ainur, and they can enter into it. 
But this is not, of course, the same as the re-entry of Eru to defeat Melkor. It, it refers, rather, to the mystery of authorship, by which the author, while remaining outside and independent of his work, also indwells in it, on its derivative plane, below that of his own being, as the source and guarantee of its being. Um, okay. Okay. Um, so... I'm not even sure exactly what to say about this. Let me just start off by saying the thing that it might be irresponsible to say, but I don't think it's irresponsible, but it might be. So I'm just going to say it with the uh, with that introduction. Cecilia, yes, thank you. That's exactly... George and Cecilia are right there with me. Um, we were looking at how when we were uh, talking about Eru entering into Arda himself at the end of the Athrabeth, um, the concept of the incarnation uh, was there, right? Finrod doesn't exactly say how it could work, right? He doesn't know the mechanics exactly. He doesn't know about the idea of God becoming man and taking flesh, but but he's pretty close to it, right? He has He has a fairly clear idea of it, and thus the beginnings of the idea of the Trinity. Eru remaining outside as Svinrod insists he would still be, while also becoming incarnate within Arda. Um, but uh, what about the third person of the Trinity? Here it is! That's the irresponsible thing, or rather incautious thing, not irresponsible, but perhaps incautious. I don't know for sure that that's what Tolkien is thinking here, but it sure sounds like it to me. Um, especially his use of the word indwelling seems fairly conspicuous to me. Um, but um, uh, And also, the creative activity of Eru in some sense distinct from or within him. Um, that it's like... It's like it's the creative power of Eru, the creative activity of Eru himself, but it's as if it were a separate person that he could send to indwell his creatures. It would be like that. And that sounds awfully reminiscent uh, to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit uh, to me. Again, I'm not, I don't, I don't want to oversimplify this. I don't, I mean, and so I hesitate to draw an equal sign, just a crude equal sign. The flame imperishable equals the Holy Spirit. Um, that, that's where that's why I feel it's irresponsible or at least incautious to to say it because if I uh, if I just make I feel comfortable saying he seems to be connecting the flame imperishable with the Holy Spirit here, but if I were to go the step further and say the flame imperishable is in Tolkien's mind the Holy Spirit, I start to get all twitchy and squirmy, right? It's like, oh, that's, um, I'm not comfortable with that. I think that might not be true, right? Or at least it might not always be true, um, uh, or in every sense true. Um, but, um, but anyway, this is, um, uh, I think, um, something that, uh, we, um, something that we need to at least consider here, right? Um, uh, even if it might not be true as the, we, with the bald equal sign there, flame imperishable equals the Holy Spirit, it's still a very similar concept that he's working with here. 
What is the flame imperishable? The flame imperishable is sent out from Eru. It is that which enables the creation to become a thing on the same plane as the Ainur, um, and which they can enter into. He gives it, in a sense, therefore, objective existence, right? This is what it means for him to say, Ea, for him to say, this is the world that is. It was the world that was already conceived. What Wasn't the world already? Didn't it exist already when they were singing it? Didn't it exist during the singing? Didn't it exist in the mind of Iluvatar before they started singing? Certainly didn't exist once they started singing. Didn't it, didn't it exist when they were looking at the vision? Right? Those all seem to be times when you could say in one sense the world existed. But then it only existed as a story. Right? Like a story told by an author. Does that story exist? Yes. Does it exist on the same plane as the author himself? No. Not exactly, right? Um, but when the flame imperishable is sent to dwell at the heart of the world, it gains being. It now is in the same sense that the Valar are. Um, that exists on their plane now. He gives it primary being, right? Not just to... to sort of, well, not to misapply, but to apply sketchily uh, Tolkien's terminology, it becomes the primary world instead of a secondary world, right? Um, uh, yes, on the same plane as the Ainur, and they can enter into it. They can now interact with it as in the sense of being fellow creatures of Iluvatar as peers, right? They and Ea are on equal footing in that way. They're both creatures of Iluvatar, and they can interact with each other. Um, yes, yes. Um, okay. Um, yes, okay, good. Sorry, I'm just I'm uh, reading through comments here. Um, Yes, David says, the passage suggests that the flame imperishable belongs to everything in Arda. It belongs to animals, trees, and rocks, as well as the children. Mm, yes, David. I'm not sure I'd say belongs to, um, but um, in dwells, yes. 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 In as much as they have existence, right? Um, it means that the flame imperishable is indwelling them. The creative activity of Eru conceived as something distinct, in some sense, distinct from or within him. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, let me explain a little bit more about the reason why I get twitchy about simply saying the flame imperishable equals the Holy Spirit. Um, here's the... the equal signs are transitive, mathematically speaking, right? That is to say, if 2 plus 3 equals 5, then it is equally true to say that 5 equals 3 plus 2, right? You can always flip the equation and it remains true if you've got an equal sign in the middle, right? 
um, that is what makes me nervous about making that kind of statement, because once you say the flame imperishable equals the Holy Spirit, then logically it is very difficult to not say the Holy Spirit equals the flame imperishable. That is to say, therefore, all the things that are said and believed again, said in the Bible and believed in Christian tradition about the Holy Spirit must also be true of the flame imperishable by implication. Right. And that's where I'm like, yeah, no, no, I, I, I that's what I, I I'm not I, I, now I'm not asserting that that's definitely not true, but I am. Um, uh, I am. Not comfortable asserting that because I think there would likely be very many exceptions uh, to that. We don't see uh, anything like the kind of int- we don't see. Is there any reason to think that the flame imperishable is a person exactly? Like a person, separate, creative activity in some sense distinct from or within Eru. Yeah. But is it a, does it do things? Is it active? Uh, you know, does it have will? Um, does it interact with people? Uh, do you see what I mean? Like, so anyway, like I said, I, this is why I'm always, always nervous and using equal signs uh, when interpreting stuff like this, um, because it's not necessarily transitive. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so there we go. But anyway, but this connection is still nevertheless, I think the connection between the flame imperishable and the Holy Spirit is, I think, seems to me inevitable here, uh, uh, based on this passage. Um, it refers rather to the mystery of authorship. So this is not the same as the reentry of Eru to defeat Melkor. So does that count? Is that the sense in which, uh, you know, because remember, Finrod was saying, logically speaking, unless Eru is going to let Melkor win, he's going to have to come because nobody else is powerful enough to to give Melkor the permanent stomping down and to heal the marring, right? Nobody else can do that. So unless Eru is just going to let Melkor win, he's going to have to take a, sta- take, take a stand, right? He's going to have to step in here and enter into Arda in order to make this happen, right? Um but he's saying that so, but don't think that the setting of the flame imperishable in the middle of Avea solves the problem. That's not what we're talking about. That doesn't satisfy the requirement of Eru entering in. So in what sense then is the flame imperishable Eru entering in? In the sense, and this is where he uses the parallel with a story, right? An author remains outside and independent of his work, but the author also indwells in it on its derivative plane, below that of his own being. So the, so the author and his story don't operate. The story is not primary reality for the author, right? And yet, the author is the source and the guaranteeing... It is the author who has granted being to that story, right? Um, if the author had not been, that story would not be. Um, it is given being. The author indwells that story, and makes it. He says, Ea, and the story is. That's what the author does, right? Um, That's what... So the story that is Ea might exist on the same level as the Valar themselves, 
but it doesn't exist on the same level as Eru himself, right? He has to still descend to enter into that, which is every bit as miraculous as the author actually entering into and becoming a character in the story that he's writing. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good, good. Um, I want to move on. I want to make sure we at least start the tale of Adonel tonight. Some say the disaster that happened at the beginning of the history of our people, before any had yet... Some say the disaster happened at the beginning of the history of our people, before any had yet died. The voice had spoken to us, and we had listened. The voice said, Ye are my children. I have sent you to dwell here. In time ye will inherit all this earth. But first you must be children and learn. Call on me, and I shall hear, for I am watching over you. We understood the voice in our hearts, though we had no words yet. Then the desire for words awoke in us, and we began to make them. But we were few, and the world was wide and strange. Though we greatly desired to understand, learning was difficult, and the making of words was slow. In that time we called often, and the voice answered. But it seldom answered our questions, saying only, First seek to find the answer for yourselves, for ye will have joy in the finding, and so grow from childhood and become wise. Do not seek to leave childhood before your time. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so... Um, the tale of Adonel begins by asserting openly, something which was implied, but implied only, in the, in the body, of, in the wrist of the Athrobeth, right? Or in the body of the Athrobeth. Um, and that is that the voice in the darkness, that... Remember we talked about the authority of Elvish lore, right? How Finrod keeps playing the authority card, right? Like, so, um, we elves believe this, and we have good reason to believe that we're right about this because the Valar told us this and they were totally there, right? And, you know, the Valar's authority on these matters is pretty high because they're the ones who like shaped the earth and they participated in the music and, you know, Iluvatar directly unfolded, you know, to them their, his design. So they know what they're talking about, right? And we got this straight from them. So I'm pretty sure it's right, right? That's his authority for elvish lore. What does what authority does she does does Andreth claim for human lore? And she's much more indirect about this and she doesn't say it explicitly, but the implication is that humans have lore that was revealed to them directly from Iluvatar. The Valar did not come for them. They were not taken to uh, Amon. They were not taught by the Valar. But yet they don't have no authority. Indeed, their authority is higher and more direct than the elves' authority is. For reasons of his own, Iluvatar chooses to speak directly to men in their youth, in ways that he never did speak directly to elves. Does that ever happen? Do we have a single instance of Iluvatar 
communicating directly to an elf? I don't think that we do. I can't think of one. Can anybody think of one I'm forgetting? But I don't think that any elf ever received or claimed to receive direct communication from Iluvatar himself. And this, I think, also helps to cast light on another interesting phenomenon, plainly observable in Tolkien's world, and that is how rarely the elves worship Iluvatar directly either. Um, right? I mean, they don't worship Iluvatar. They don't have churches. When they sing hymns of praise, we hear them singing hymns, but they're singing hymns to Elbereth, not to Iluvatar. Right? Um, now, this is not to say that the elves do not reverence Iluvatar or do not know about Iluvatar, but they don't have that kind of relationship with him. And remember, this was something that he was already talking about in the notes and commentary before. Remember, it's humans who establish that direct link with the Louvre. Remember, this is what he says that elves are going to owe to good men, right? Lots of badness in men, but the goodness in men will enable them to connect with the Louvatar directly, and that's where the elves will follow them. That's where they will lead the way um, with, uh, uh, with the elves. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, David, you're absolutely right. Uh, of course, the thing that mitigates the uh, strength of the authority of human tradition is the number of generations that the story has passed through. Absolutely. Absolutely. Whereas the elves can, Finrod can say, I personally spoke to Manway, right? So this is secondhand information you're getting, right? Secondhand information from, uh, from the Valar themselves. Uh, whereas even if the original humans received this directly from Iluvatar, it's passed through many generations since then. I agree. Definitely. Um, but the point is, this establishes a paradigm, right? That is, humans as a people are related to Iluvatar differently, and we're seeing this being um, illustrated and claimed from the beginning of humanity. Note also that this suggests why humans have fallen further than elves. Not because they're inferior. Not because the elves are better and stronger and so they fell less, whereas humans are all weak and pathetic, and so they became much more evil than the elves ever became. Right? Because the elves are awesome and the humans are not. That's not the thing at all. Right? There is a sense in which elves, or sorry, a sense in which humans were originally the more privileged of the people. Right? more privileged to receive this, to, to be granted this direct relationship with Iluvatar himself. And that they betrayed that relationship means that's a big deal, a much bigger deal than the kind of minor Melkorism that we see uh, among elves. Um, and yes, uh, you're absolutely right, um, Stephen, cover that... Uh, it is how to, how how very Tolkienish is it that 
when they receive, when they understand the voice in their hearts, what is the first impulse that comes upon them? The impulse to make language, right? The desire for words awoken us. What a statement that is, right? What a to- like if um, it's like an independent clause, which could be like one of the uh, one of the mottos of Tolkien's life, right? Uh, <laughs> the desire for words awoken us. Oh man. Um, and David Erbach, that certainly does show kinship with the elves, uh, who also have a desire for words. Um, we greatly desired to understand learning was difficult and the making of words was slow. Um, the voice answers them, but it doesn't answer their qu- It doesn't give them all the information that they want, encouraging them instead to find the answer for themselves because you will have joy in the finding, right? I designed you to grow into from childhood and become wise. I designed you to enjoy finding things out, right? Um, remember what Finrod says about the psychology of humanity, right? Um, okay, one more. One more, then we'll go. Then one appeared among us, in our own form visible, but greater and more beautiful. And he said that he had come out of pity. Ye should not have been left alone and uninstructed, he said. The world is full of marvelous riches which knowledge can unlock. Ye could have food more abundant and more delicious than the poor things that ye now eat. Ye could have dwellings of ease, in which ye could keep light and shut out the night. Ye could be clad even as I. Then we looked, and lo, he was clad in raiment that shone like silver and gold, and he had a crown on his head and gems in his hair. If ye wish to be like me, he said, I will teach you. Then we took him as teacher. He was less swift than we had hoped to teach us how to find or to make for ourselves the things that we desired, though he had awakened many desires in our hearts. But if any doubted or were impatient, he would bring and set us before and set before us all that we wished for. I am the giver of gifts, he said, and the gifts shall never fail as long as ye trust me. Okay. Um, yeah, David Attlee says, Impatience seems to be a consistent flaw in Tolkien's humans. Um, yes. Yeah. It's certainly something that comes up a lot. I agree. I agree. Um, how does... What is the angle that Melkor takes? Well, David, as you suggest, Melkor plays upon their impatience, right? They want these things and they want them. They want the easier route to these things, right? He offers them food more abundant and more delicious. He offers them dwellings of ease in which you could keep light and shut out the night, which is a fascinating offer because there's no evidence that they want that yet. Do they look at the night as something that needs to be shut out, that they want to close themselves away from? Um, It's not clear at all that they do. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Florian, you're right. What they're lacking is the long, the longer, the long-term perspective, right? Um, now, notice back even on the previous slide, um, there is before any had yet died. Um, 
So the question, were the original humans designed to be immortal or not? Um, seems to be unanswered, perhaps in a sense unanswerable, uh, exactly, um, because it's it's unknown. They hadn't, as far as we know, they hadn't, li- we're not told how long this had been, right? Um, were they getting old? Uh, would that have happened? Because no matter what the time is, they still could have been just longer lived. Maybe they fell 500 years after the first generation of men awoke. Well, okay. Um, maybe that just means that men were going to live a thousand years and then die, right? Nothing, none, nothing, no amount of longevity prior to this fall would have proven that men were intended never to die, right? Uh, so there's, uh, there's still hope for the elvish idea that death was the gift of Iluvatar to men. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Kimber, that, I agree, that seems important. Um, Melkor manifests physically, Kimber says, and offers them physical gifts. The voice was unembodied and inspired intangible pursuits. Yes, that's a really important distinction. And it seems to be another way in which, notice how Melkor is using matter right? He is using matter, whereas Iluvatar is relating directly to their spirits, right? He is communicating in their hearts directly to the Thea. Melkor is appealing to their Hroar, right? To their bodies, to the, to, to, to matter. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and therefore his position as the giver of gifts explicitly, it's not just that he is trying to win them over. He's not only doing, following the same strategy that Tolkien described in the commentary, right? That one of bringing them to love and admire him and then to put themselves in a posture of rebellion and then to be too afraid to return to their original obedience. He's doing that, and we'll see him do exactly that. But it's not only that that he's doing by offering them gifts, right? By offering them gifts, he is short-circuiting the process that Iluvatar has already communicated to their spirits, right? Um, By giving them the things that they were supposed to work to develop, that they were supposed to discover for themselves, they would have become wise in that process. They would have learned more. It would have been harder, but they would have learned more by figuring out how to do it themselves. That's what they were supposed to do. By being given these things from Melkor, being reliant only upon him, only upon the giver of gifts for the things that they uh, get, right? For the things that they have. Um, they are, uh, um, they're not learning, right? The whole purpose of Iluvatar, this path to wisdom that he laid out for them in their spirits, is ceased, right? It's, uh, it's brought to an im. Uh, to a to a uh, a premature end. Um, so yes, exactly. We see that he is the original Anatar. That's exactly right. Um, uh, exactly. And yes, Cecilia, you're absolutely right to say that in doing this, in short circuiting the learning process that Iluvatar had laid out for them, he is also stealing from them the joy 
which they would have had in learning these things, right? It's not just that he had, you know, was trying to teach them delayed gratification, right? It's not like he was just, you know, they're asking for good things and he's saying, no, you have to do it yourself. I want to make you tough, right? I want you to suffer in order to get these good things for yourself and then you'll appreciate them. That's not what he says. He says, you will have joy of, you know, learning will bring you joy um, and you will also become wise. So, uh, the process will be, f- the, the goods will be good. The process will be fun, will be joyful. Uh, and the result of the entire process will be wisdom. You will be brought to a better place. Here, they're not brought to a better place, right? All of that gets removed by uh, the the posture of giving gifts, right? So Melkor manages to sort of cut across, um, uh, to cut across the entire thing. Okay. Um, I'm going to let you go now. We'll finish up the tale of Adonel next time and do uh, Myths Transformed. We are getting close to the end of Morgoth's Ring now. Um, it's coming. It's coming soon. And then everything goes straight to hell, as several people were pointing out. Um, Inferno next. Thanks, everybody. Uh, I will see you guys around. Have a good rest of your week. Bye now. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org slash fund.